Let's uh, bow our heads together as we consider God's word. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to turn uh, in your Bible, if you have a, a blue pew Bible, it should be in front of you there, and the, the pew in front of you. We're going to be looking at the book of Deuteronomy this morning. We're actually starting a sermon series this morning um, that speaks of God as our refuge. And as we, uh, again, the, the, if you want to follow along in your pew Bible, that's on page 176. And before we jump into Deuteronomy, I want to take a few minutes to introduce or to talk about why we are doing this series about God as our refuge. Um, It's called Our Mighty Fortress, Finding Refuge in God in an Uncertain World. This uh, this past summer while I was uh, on sabbatical, I was back in uh, Montana, in Bozeman, and I was visiting with a close friend of mine. And uh, as I mentioned, he lives there uh, in Bozeman, Montana, which is, if you've ever been to Montana, it's just simply beautiful. I mean, it's, I mean to me, it's, I'm partial because I'm from there. But uh, the Rocky Mountains, uh, the, it's, it's simply a beautiful area to live in. In fact, it's one of the most, it's one of the fastest growing areas in America right now. The whole Gallatin Valley area is real estate. Uh, I think real estate is growing up here and around the country. It's, it's even worse there in the Bozeman area. So he lives in a beautiful part of the city, and in the neighborhood that he's in is a middle, upper middle class neighborhood. It's a beautiful area. It's very well laid out, well designed. And one would think, one would think, wow, you know, to live in Montana, right? To live in Bozeman, to live in a beautiful neighborhood. I mean, it's, it's like paradise. In fact, just about a half hour outside of Bozeman, there's actually a valley called Paradise Valley, I mean, it's like that's, it's just a beautiful area to live. And I, but as I talked with my friend, who, by the way, is a wonderful Christian man, he and his wife, they know their neighbors well, and he told me about his neighbors. I mean, not just like in the, in the, in the neighborhood in general, but his immediate neighbors, two uh, houses to the left, two houses to the right. And here in this beautiful state, in this beautiful neighborhood, he spoke of how on the right, immediate right, lived a married couple who were recently celebrating their daughter's wedding. And at the rehearsal dinner the night before, the wife's brother was present and during the dinner suffered a major heart attack and died. Imagine that would be like, right? Can you imagine even wanting to go forward with the ceremony and the wedding and you're in this moment, this milestone in the life of your extended family and tragedy strikes right there. Imagine what that would be like the next day, trying to, and just all the sorrow that would come from the next door to them was a married couple, a married couple in their mid-30s. The wife's sister, who was in her early 30s, had been in a brutal battle with colon cancer for several years, and just recently, the doctors had said that there was nothing more that they could do. And on the other side of where they lived uh, was, um, was a married couple in their 40s. A number of years back, they had been riding, out riding, having fun in the Montana wilderness. They're riding an ATV, and the husband was uh, in an accident, was thrown off the ATV and broke his back. And spent years recovering. Still can walk now, but can't, can't really do much else. And then next door to them was a young couple in their late 20s or maybe early 30s, and about three or four years ago, he was diagnosed with, with testicular cancer. And after a long battle, was cancer-free. And amazingly, he and his wife, she was able to become pregnant. 
and they named their child, and when the day of birth came, there was no heartbeat. And you see, they're thinking, you know, here, imagine that, holding your six-pound baby, realizing all your dreams, all your hopes, it's gone. And all of this in beautiful Bozeman, Montana, in a middle-class neighborhood. Now, I don't know how well you know your neighbors. Sometimes in those very kinds of neighborhoods, it can be very difficult, actually, to get to know people. But I know for me and, for, for me and Sarah, as we've gotten to know our neighbors in the various places we've lived, we've always been surprised. We've always been caught off guard that when we actually do get to know our neighbors, we're amazed at the struggles, the trials, the hardships, the afflictions, the sorrows that they are bearing and that they are just trying to survive. It reveals this fact that despite all of our wealth, despite all of our political freedom that we may have, despite all of the, the, the beauty of this world, that hardship and affliction and uncertainty are always there. We live in a very uncertain and unsafe world. Right? What did Ben Franklin say? Nothing is for sure except death and taxes, right? Life is so uncertain. In fact, often as a parent and as just to have a household, I think about all the struggles that we have and difficulties that we have, but I think about how healthy our family is. There's seven of us, we're rarely sick, and I'm always wondering, when is, when is something going to happen? Not out of cynicism, but just out of a sense of, you know, life is the world. We live in a very broken place, and just to enjoy every moment of every day that we have together. It's a very uncertain and unsafe world. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the song by Jamie Johnson called In Color. It's a beautiful song. It's actually a true story about he was, he was at his grandfather's house and he was rummaging through these various black and white pictures from, a, from, from a long, many, many years ago. And the song begins, I said, it says, I said, Grandpa, what's this picture here? It's all black and white and it ain't real clear. Is that you there? He said, yeah, I was 11, and times were tough back in 35. That's me and Uncle Joe just trying to survive a cotton farm in a Great Depression. And then the, the refrain, or the chorus of the song is, if it looks like we were scared to death, like a couple of kids trying to save each other, you should have seen it in color, right? And he goes on to say, oh, and this one's, this picture here, this one here is taken overseas in the middle of hell in 43. In the wintertime, you can almost see my breath. That was my tail gunner, old Johnny McGee. He was, in, he was a high school teacher from New Orleans, and he had my back right through the day we left. And again, if it looks like, if it looks like we were scared to death, like a couple of kids just trying to save each other, you should have seen it in color. It's describing a life of just of heartache, of struggle, of loss, a life of fear. Listen, we have a reason to be fearful, to be anxious, to be angry, to be depressed, to feel vulnerable, to feel defeated in a world that is just so uncertain, that is just so unsafe. If I could use the word, we have a right in a sense, we have a reason to feel just shaken, like, what's next? What's coming down the pike next? 
What's the next heartache? What's the next loss? What's the next betrayal? And this is important to understand because this is the world of the psalmist. This is the world that the psalmist describes. He uses words just like those. Fearful, depressed, anxious, angry, defeated. He uses words like those to describe his life and the life of God's people. Okay? Listen, but they're rarely the last word. In fact, the psalmist can actually speak with an amazing confidence, even in defiance in the face of a very scary world. For example, several places, listen to this, several places in the Psalms, the psalmist says, I will never be shaken. Imagine that. Imagine being able to get up every morning with the confidence and not like some escapist sort of, opt- not just some Pollyanna optimism, but this confidence that says, I will never be shaken. Or several other places, he says, I will not be afraid. And it's not just this sort of, you know, sort of convincing will. He says, I have reason. I will not be afraid. I mean, wouldn't that be great? I mean, and how, how can he talk like that in a world like this? And the, the answer is that the psalmist has learned to find refuge in the God of the Psalms, in the God of David, and in the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. In fact, if you want to turn there, you can. Psalm 16. Chapter Psalm 16. Let's turn there just real quick. It's worth turning there. If you want to follow along in your pew Bible, it's on, uh, it's on Psalm 16. Psalms are right in the middle of the Bible. Open up your Bible, split it in half. Psalm 16 is on page uh, 468 in your pew Bible, page 468. And it, re- it begins this, it begins like this. Verse 1 is, keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. And then if you skip down to verse 8 on the next page, it says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be Shaken. Now listen to this. Listen to what he says here. He speaks very, very, uh, he speaks of his own body. It's very, very practical. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body, listen to this, my body also will rest secure. I don't know about you, but I can be, I hope this isn't too personal, but I can be in bed at night and I start thinking, my heart, my mind starts racing and literally my body temperature goes up. And I start sweating, and I'm just miserable. I'm worried, I'm anxious, I'm fearful, full of regret, full of shame. Figuring out, trying to figure out how I'm going to make life work. And he says, my body also will rest secure. And he speaks, of course, in there he's speaking of refuge in the face of death. And so as we, can, as we go through our series this, uh, this fall, we were talking about what it means to find refuge in God in the face of all kinds of adverse, difficult circumstances in life. Or can, that's Psalm 16. Just turn, turn, uh, just turn uh, to 469, to, to page, excuse me, page 469, to Psalm 18, verse 2. You see it there on the right-hand column? It says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock, in whom I take refuge, 
my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And we're seeing a very great example of this constellation of terms that we find in the Psalms of rock, refuge, fortress, stronghold, hiding place that all speak of this idea of God as one who is bigger and greater than the forces of darkness and evil in this world. Tur- keep turning to the right. Turn to one more, one more here to Psalm, um, Psalm 27. <clears throat> That's on page uh, 475. Psalm 27 begins with this, just verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Isn't that beautiful? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Now this leads to a key idea that we're going to see again and again and again through the fall. And it's this. Are you ready, gang? If, if, if God's our fortress, we will be fearless. Let me say that again. If he's our fortress, we'll be fearless. Let me say it this way, comparatively. The more that he's our fortress, the more we will be fearless. This is the essence of Christian salvation. Christian salvation is very rarely the removal of trial. It is very very rarely the removal of danger. It is very rarely the removal of temptation. The true salvation is the Removal of fear of danger. The removal of fear of temptation. The removal of fear of darkness. Does that make sense? It's the ability to stand in the face of hardship and trial and loss. And because God is with you, because He is present, because we know He is for us, we can be fearless. Okay, you got that? Let me say it again. If he's our fortress, then we'll be fearless. And that's the first idea. The second key idea is related to it. It's this. We, we will know, we'll know that he's our fortress when we know that he's really for us. Isn't that where we're all kind of wondering? Is God really for me? Does he really, is, what, is what's happening around me and, and, and to me, is it really part of God's plan for my life? Does he really care about me? Does he know what he's doing? In the midst of all of this insanity and hardship, it's a, it's a legitimate question. So this morning we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to be looking at the idea of God as our rock, as a rock. And we're going to use this, uh, if we turn to the left, we're going to be in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32, if you want to follow along there, that's, um, that is on page um, 176 in your pew Bible, if you want to follow along there. And let me just kind of introduce this, uh, this song here. Um, uh, the God's people are on the, uh, the doorstep of the promised land. They've come up out of Egypt. They have, they have wandered out of rebellion. They have wandered in, uh, in the desert for 40 years, and now they are on the cusp of entering into the promised land. And Moses is actually, listen, this is interesting. He's going to sing them a song, right? This is very interesting. This is called the Song of Moses, okay? And the song functions earlier at the beginning of the service. I mentioned the song, the folk rock song, Cats in the Cradle. How many of you, many of you are familiar with this song, the Cats in the Cradle, right? It's a very well-known song. And I don't know, I actually don't know the, 
the, the artist, I don't want to say his name, it's just, it looks like Harry Chapin. Is that right? Does anyone know? Is that right? Did I say that right? Chapin? Okay. I didn't, that's, that's, how, that's how ignorant I am uh, uh, artistically. But he, I knew the song, I just didn't know the artist. And he, 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 the song tells, listen, most of you know this, it tells of a tragic father-son relationship in which the father promises that he'll spend time with his son, but never actually does. And as the, son, as the father promises to spend time, you know, we'll have a good time then, right? What does the son promise back? You know I'm going to be like you, Dad. You know I'm going to be like you. And the song, of course, serves as a warning to parents, and, and Chapin, thinking of his own son, and I was reading this, this interview with him, and he's, 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 he's uh, passed now, but, but this is uh, an interview from quite a while ago. He was thinking of his own son, and he said, frankly, this song scares me to death. Isn't that interesting? And he goes on to say what I mentioned earlier in the service, that he said, uh, we learn life's lessons too late. And so he, he, actually his wife actually wrote the words to the song based on a relationship, or based on a, a father-son relationship that she knew about. And, um, <clears throat> and I, when I mention the song, it's because for two reasons. For the first is that the song speaks of chronic, you might say, infidelity as a father. It speaks, uh, speaks of this relationship in which a promise is made and not followed through on. Does that make sense? And then it also, though, that also serves that the function of the song isn't just to be depressing. It's not just to be like, well, that was a terrible story. And let's all just go be depressed for a What's the purpose of the song? To help those who are listening go what? Oh, maybe I shouldn't be like that. Maybe there's still time. It's sort of the Ebenezer Scrooge of what, what day is it, right? Is there still time to rethink this, this chronic infidelity. And that's exactly how the, book, the, the, the song of Moses, Moses writes this very cynical song. <laughs> He's like, I know you Israelites. I know that you're totally unfaithful. I know that you're totally rebellious. And listen, this is how it's all going to go down if you don't change. And so literally, he sees, the song is a song for you to remember, for your descendants to remember. Because I know you guys. I know what we humans are like. I know what the people of God are like. That we're chronically unfaithful. That we're good at pretending. Let me give you a story. I was, um, when I was, I think I might have shared the story before. When I was in, in seminary, I got to know a, a really neat guy. Um, big guy, uh, um, six foot something, Italian from New York. And, uh, he spoke to me one time, we were having a beer together, and he spoke of how his uh, relationship with his father was a really, really terrible one. In fact, his father was, uh, throughout his, growing up his whole life, his father abused, verbally abused him. Just loved to just destroy his son. And, um, and, and I remember my friend saying, he said, if someone tells you, Pardon my French here, but he says, uh, but he said, if someone tells you you're a piece of crap enough times, you'll believe it. Imagine that, what that's like. The very guy who's supposed to be building you up 
dad is the one who's tearing you down. A father who's supposed to be like this actually turns out to be like this. Or maybe for some of you, it was the opposite. You had a father or a parent who, it's not that they, they tore you down, they just never said anything good at all. They never affirmed you. Never said, I love you. That's this example of, of, of this idea of infidelity. It's not just a marital thing. It's this notion of being in a relationship promising to play a certain part and not fulfilling that. Okay, does that, is that making sense? And so whether it's a parental, to use the keep with the example, a parental abuse of authority, or it's the parental abdication of authority, just don't show up. In fact, and what's even, even more amazing is that uh, many experts today, many uh, psychologists today, experts in trauma and, and, and abuse and parental relations, they will actually say, you know, you, know, you know what's worse? Abuse, parental abuse or parental neglect? What is more traumatic long-term? I often say it's the neglect. Isn't that amazing? In other words, this says, you know, I, I'm going to talk to you, I'm going to tell you how terrible you are. But this over here says what? I'm going to pretend like you don't even exist. Like you're dead to me. I don't have time for you. You're just an obstacle. And it's much, uh, much more passive-aggressive. Well, I didn't say anything wrong. I wasn't mean to you. No, you just pretended like I didn't exist. And so it's this notion, listen, this is what I want you to hear this morning. How do we find refuge in a world that is so often fake, that is so often pretend? Does that make sense? All of us live pretend lives, and here it's the people of God who are pretend. They are pretending to be faithful. And we'll get into that as we sing. Let's jump into the text and we'll see what I'm talking about here. Let's, 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 let's begin in verse 1 of, of, of Deuteronomy 32. Moses sings, first he sings in hope of fruitfulness. Listen to this. He says, listen you heavens, and I will speak, hear you earth, the words of my mouth. Verse 2, let my teaching fall like rain. And my words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. He's, he's longing for his teaching, his words. He's longing for this song to make an impact in the lives of his people. How is that? To awaken them from their pretense of faithfulness to God. To awaken them from the charade that God's people so often live, that I live, that you live. This pretense of commitment. And to actually be faithful. He's longing for that. So he sings in hope of, of fruitfulness. Right? That analogy there of he says, well, his words to be like rain, like the dew, like the showers. That is that his words will fall on, 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 on the land and it will produce life. It will produce fruit. It will produce growth. And Moses sings first and foremost of a faithful God whom he calls the rock. Look in verses 3 and 4. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. Now think about that. If you're a great uh, communicator, if you're a great singer, a great artist, you will often pick a singular, single metaphor, a very concrete idea, something that's familiar with the audience. And of course, where has Israel been the last 40 years? In the wilderness. And there are all of these, what? Rocks everywhere. 
And of course, what he has in mind here isn't this idea of like a rock that you hold in your hand, okay, kids? He has an idea in mind of a, of a large edifice, something that you would climb up that would be um, just sort of uh, like a, almost like a mountain, a large rock mountain, something that would provide shade from the beating sun, something that would provide protection. You could crawl up and escape from, from enemies. Does that make sense? So the rock here has this idea of, of protection, of, of comfort, of, of rescue, okay? And we'll see that more in the Psalms. But here specifically, the most, the, the most, the, 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 the central idea in mind here is that, that God is the rock in the sense that he is reliable. He is reliable. Look at what he goes on to say in the rest of the verse. He is the rock. His works are perfect. That is to say, his works are sincere. That word perfect in Hebrew means, it means the same all throughout. Right, kids? If you take a, a rock, let's say a, a large boulder, and you, you'd say you grab a pick or something like that, and you start, you start hitting at the rock, and it chips away, what are you going to find inside that rock? More rock. That's right. <laughs> it's, just, it's the exact same all the way through. There's nothing hidden in there. There's nothing different. God is the same. He is sincere. There's no guile. There's no pretense. There's no hidden agenda. There's no ulterior motive. He is the same. He is what the, what the theologians call his simplicity. Does that make sense? It was, some of you were a lot of music today, um, but most of you may be familiar with um, the song, A Simple Kind of Man. Right, this beautiful, this, uh, this, the guy sings of, um, who is that? Um, someone help me. Leonard Skinner, isn't it Leonard Skinner? Yeah, Leonard Skinner is this beautiful song of, about this idea of his mom pulling him aside, and she urges him in life to be a simple kind of man, which means what? Not like simplistic or silly or stupid. Simple in the sense of what? Of just being honest, being real, being sincere. That's a tall order, isn't it? It's a beautiful order, but that's exactly the point, is that he is the rock in the sense that he is simple, he is singular, he's pure, his works are perfect. Okay? But not only is he, is he simple and sincere, listen to this, he's supreme. In fact, he's not just a rock, what does it, verse 4 say? He is the rock. In fact, if you skip ahead, we can turn to look at the page on the right on page 177. Look in verse 31. Oh, I'm sorry, it's on the following page here. Verse 31, uh, on page, top of page 178 in the left column, it says, For their rock, he's speaking of the, the rock of, of the nations, their gods, for their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. Isn't that an amazing statement? He's saying that there's, there's Paul, when, when, there's, when Moses describes God, he says he is the rock. There is, a, there is no other rock like him. He is unique. And you know what? This is amazing. This is so true historically. When you compare Yahweh to the gods of the ancient Near East, you find that he is in so many ways completely different. I mean, there are some similarities but there are so many differences. Listen to this. This is one uh, expert in the ancient Near East, um, uh, Dr. Alan Millard. He says this, Basic to Israel's existence was the covenant that God made with her, with her, with Israel, at Mount Sinai. 
In this, Israel was different from her, uh, from her neighbors. There is no hint of any agreement of this sort described in the Bible. And no comparison can be made between those gods and Israel's God, who communicated consistently century after century and so gave hope of restoration after the people were exiled from their land. That is to say, there are actually three things I want to mention that make Israel's God different from the nations. The first is that of a relationship. And this is a really fascinating, fascinating to me anyway. If you look at all the gods of the ancient Near East, they are gods of places. Does that make sense? They're a god of a certain land, of a certain area, of a certain region. So you're traveling along and suddenly you enter into the land of Chemosh, or the domain of Ra. Does that make sense? They were associated with a place. Only Israel's God was associated with a, a people. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. In fact, he's the God of Israel in the land of Egypt. This is Ra's land. This is the land of the Pharaoh. And what does is, what is, what is Yahweh come in and do? <laughs> he's like, I'm going to take over. I'm taking my people out, right? And I'm in charge. So first and foremost, unlike the gods of the nations who were, who were about a location and a place, Israel's God was about a relationship, okay? He was about a, a covenant relationship. So first, a relationship. Second, reliability. In this relationship, he makes promises. He does it with Abraham. He does it with Isaac and Jacob. He does it with all the patriarchs. And then at Mount Sinai, he does it with God's people. He makes promises. As I just read from Alan Millard, literally no other god in the ancient Near East did that. They didn't make a promise. Hey, this is what I'm going to do for your, your descendants. Hey, this is, we're going to come up out of Egypt and we're going to go to the land of Canaan. No God did that in the ancient Near East. In fact, not only was, it, was, that, was he different in terms of being relational and being reliable, finally, he was what I'm going to call revelational. That is to say, in terms of revelation, he actually spoke to his people. Do you know how the other nations found out the will of their gods? Through things like divination through just various cultic practices. They would take a, a goat, they would kill it, they'd open up the goat, find certain of uh, the liver, and they would examine the liver to see what their God thought about something. Or they would do some sort of cultic ritual to try to discern the unknowable will of a God. Or if, they, if things are going bad, let's say that, the, let's say that the, there's a famine or something, they think, wow, God must be upset with us, and so let's, let's do something to sacrifice. Let's, let's, I don't know, let's figure it out. And by contrast, Israel's God had laid out, through Moses, had laid out exactly what he desired. Exactly what was required for atonement. What was exactly required for flourishing. They knew everything that was needed to, to have a relationship with God. And that was utterly unique in the ancient Near East. For their rock is not like our rock, as even our enemies concede. Isn't that amazing? It's an incredible thing. So Moses first sings of a faithful God whom he calls the rock, one who is supreme, one who is sincere, one who is steadfast. That's what he primarily says in the second half of verse 4. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Again, I can't emphasize how rarely in the ancient Near East the gods were called faithful. 
reliable, true, just. Those are not words that were used to describe the gods of the ancient Near East. In fact, they were often celebrated for being unpredictable, for being sort of like, you know, who, know, who never know what, what this God's going to do. Isn't that cool? That's how in charge he is. But Moses not only sings of a faithful people, a faithful God, he sings of a fickle and foolish people. God was the rock, but Israel, listen to this, Israel was a wreck. Look at verse 5. Moses says, they, that is God's people, they are corrupt. You could translate it, they are counterfeit. They are complicated, right? Whereas God is simple, you know exactly what you're getting into. Israel is complicated, they're counterfeit, they're, they're pretend. Kids, we pretend all the time, don't we, right? On your first day of school, you go to school and you want, to, you want all the kids to like you. Yeah, you want to be liked, and so you pretend to be a certain way. Or perhaps if you've gone away, when we, at one time in our life, we went on our first date. And of course, what do we do? We put our best foot forward. We try to be as best as we possibly can. We're at work, right? So often we speak of the idea of, uh, we use the phrase, we fake it till you make it. Right? It's not only at work, but it's also through life. We, we fake these things. I can remember a... Uh, uh, a classmate of mine, this is many years ago uh, when I was a kid, but a classmate, he invited most of his class to his birthday party. And all the kids were like, yeah, we can't wait to come. It's going to be great. And of course, when the day of the party came, and then in the one or two days beforehand, all these kids started canceling on him. So that who actually showed up to the party was very few. Now think about that. What's that like when people promise something? And then they take back. When we as a congregation, as Christians, promise to love each other as a family, and yet at the end of the service, we're right out the door. And we promise to, um, to serve in the church. You know, before the sabbatical, I sent out numerous emails and texts just saying, hey, I'm going to be gone for the summer. Um, would you be interested in Sunday school, teaching Sunday school? Would you be interested in helping out with children's church? I got one person respond to say no. Another person respond to say yes. And guess what, the rest of the, guess what I got for the rest of the replies? Nothing. And this is, it's okay, just say no. If you can't do it, just say no. But just not even to get a response. It's like, hey. And it's, listen, this is not about me, okay? Listen, this is Christ church. I'm just the guy, I work for him. You're not insulting me. I mean, I'd be like, wow, that's, I feel bad for you. Okay? But this is your church, and it's Christ church. And right now, the church in Afghanistan is, tr is trying to survive. Okay? They are trying to survive. In the church in America, people didn't even show up on time to the service. If there's nothing better to do this weekend, I guess we'll go to church. If my family's not in town, if I'm not behind on homework, I guess I'll go to church. 
And I'll say I'm a family, but I actually don't know this guy's name over here. I don't know their name. I don't know. This is a tiny little church we've got, and people don't know each other's names. And it makes me wonder, are we counterfeit? Are we fake? Are we just pretending? And is there a refuge from that? So it goes on here to speak of, of a God, of a, of a people who are not only forgetful, or who are not, me, not, only, not only unfaithful, not only fickle, but they're foolish. Listen to what he says, verse, listen to this. Verse six, is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father? Is he not your creator? What, weren't you his idea? Weren't you the one who, like, didn't he create you? Didn't he call you? Didn't he choose you? Why would you be fickle with someone who is so faithful? With someone who has fathered you? Someone who takes a great delight in you? Listen, he says, verse, he calls them to, they've forgotten. He says, verse 7, remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Excuse me, the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of, of, of Israel. Look at verse 9. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. What's the thing that God has to look forward to? To whom does he long for? To whom does he delight in? What is his inheritance? It's you. He delights in you. Not only did he father you, but he finds delight in you. And Moses is saying, why aren't you, why are you abandoning him? Why are you leaving him? Why are you so, why are you so just uninterested in him? And not only, not only did he father them, not only did he find delight in them, but listen to this, verse 10 and following, he freed them. Now, in, in, in describing this, this, the way in which God frees his people here, we actually come across a second major metaphor. The first metaphor is God as a rock, a refuge, a fortress. But in the Psalms, we're also going to see another way in which God speaks of, of himself as a refuge, and that is as a, a bird that cares for its young. Listen to this description of how God frees his people. It's so beautiful. Verse 10, in a desert land... He found him, that is, the he God found his people. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him, shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. Isn't that beautiful? Christian, how does God think of you? As the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nests and hovers over its young that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. The Lord alone left, led them. No foreign God was with them. And it, speaks to go, it goes on to speak of how not only did he father them, not only did he, did he um, take delight in, uh, find delight in them, not only did he free them, but it speaks of how he fed them and how he, he, he fills them, provides for them. So in light of those things, we receive in response in verse 15. I'm not going to take the time to, because we're kind of wandering from our theme of, of a rock here, but it speaks of how in response to all of this, uh, Israel rebels. They abandon God, they forsake him, but it goes on to speak of how he refuses to forsake them. And again, I, I just want to point out here, for the sake of time here, I'm going, to, I'm going to land the plane here, but I just want to point out here, so I think it's so important. Look in verse 15, the occasion for which uh, God's people abandoned him. 
This is a poetic name for Israel. It says, Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, they became heavy and sleek. They abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their savior. In what kind of times did God's people abandon him? In times of abundance, in times of ease, in times when everything was, they were satisfied. So they grew fat and they, everything was good. I says, I follow, as I walk with some of you and your stories, it's true. I see some of you, the last two, three years, have you been through very, very difficult times. And it's amazing to see you cling to the Lord, to see you fall, fall to your knees. And again, it's not that money or abundance makes you do these things. They're the occasion for it, though. It's in those times of just, nah, things are going fine, that we just slowly wander away and we drift and before we know it we've abandoned the Lord so I'm going to ask you this morning we serve someone who is the rock you can build your life on him in a world that is so uncertain where all of us are so fake I'm fake you are we are so fake we're not real there's only one who is sincere, who is reliable, who is relational, who has revealed his will, one on whom you can build your life. And Moses is calling his people to imitate God, to live a life that is for real, to be honest, to be, re- to be repentant. And what a struggle. I struggle to do that terribly, to be truly honest with my wife, honest with my kids, to be honest as a, as a, as a pastor, let me just ask you, are, are you a family member for real? Will I stay behind after the service today and build relationships? Will I invite others into my home and my heart? And listen, today, if you, you, got, you got plans, you got to run. I understand. I'm going to be judging you as you walk out the door. I'm saying three out of four Sundays of the month, are you here? Here to stay? Are you, are you in your life? Are you seeking to actually open up your home and your heart? Are we a family? Are you a family member for real? Or is it all a charade? Is it all pretense? Is it just a game? And then second, let me ask this. Not only one, am I a family member for real, but two, am I a witness for real? In my classroom, in my family, at work, am I for real, no kidding, a witness? And I'm not talking about handing out tracts here, okay? I'm not talking about just having a cross above your computer at work, okay? I'm talking about in, in how you conduct business and how you conduct yourself. Is there a weakness? Is there, are you the first person to own something that's wrong? Are you willing in the classroom to actually, do you, are you equipped to actually speak for the Christian worldview? First Peter 3.15, it's amazing actually, the New Testament says very little about evangelizing, about getting out there, you know, and doing, you know, you know if you were to die tonight, you know, where would you, you know, you, know, you, cry, you would go before God, what would he say to you? But the New Testament speaks very little about that. That's actually a, I won't even go into that. What it does say is First Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Can you give a reason? Are you ready to give a reason for the hope that you have? 
so that you're in some sort of situation. Someone makes fun of Christianity, or they mock Christianity, or they, they caricature Christianity. You can give a reason. Well, you know what? I actually follow Jesus, and here's why. And if you're not there yet, the point isn't the guilty. The point is to say this whole entire fall in adult Sunday school will be an unapologetic class where we will be literally talking about, we will, we will literally be preparing ourselves to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Because out in the classroom, in, the work, in your workplace, you want to be real Christians, right? A real witness. And that's going to be a great time, I think. I, mean, I hope you, enjoy, I hope you um, uh, join us. It's going to be a wonderful time as we talk about the beautiful hope and the reasons that we have for that beautiful hope in Christ. So as we transition to the Lord's Supper, let's, we, we, as we gather for this meal, this meal speaks of someone, listen to this, who was faithful to the end. He was obedient to death on a cross. He is the rock. He epitomizes his heavenly father because he was faithful when he was alone. He was faithful when he, in the face of rejection. He was faithful in the midst of betrayal. He was faithful to the very end. And he indeed, as he says, is the rock on whom we can build our lives. At the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, whoever hears my words and obeys them, what? is like the wise man who built his house on rock. This supper speaks of both a welcome to those who were fickle and foolish, and it speaks of a wisdom of one who lived their life in a way that is worthy of imitation. So let's bow our heads and let's, uh, let's, be, let's, let's move to participate in this beautiful sacrament. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, you, gracious Father, in your mercy, sent your Son, Jesus, to share our human nature, to live and die in the misery of our situation, just like one of us, in order to reconcile us to you. Father, to think that he stretched out his arms upon that cross, forgiving all who were there, and offering himself in perfect obedience to your will to the very end as a blameless sacrifice for the entire world, rich and poor, old and young, from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Father, it is his death that we now proclaim, and it is in his glorious name that we pray all of these things. Amen.